Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast. It's Wisteria and we're going to do the um, Iceland folk tales and it does have sections and the first section is elves and trolls. Trolls. So we're going to start with the genesis of the elves which is actually a segment from the Bible. Once upon a time, God Almighty paid a visit to Adam and Eve. They greeted him warmly, showed him all around their house, and presented their children to him. God thought they were very promising. Then he asked Eve if they had any other children besides those he had met. She said no. As it happened, however, Eve hadn't quite finished washing some of her children, and she was ashamed to let God see them that way. For that reason, she concealed them. This was not unknown to God, and he said, Whatever must be hidden from me shall also be hidden from people. The unwashed children then became invisible to human eyes. They lived in the hills and mounds and rocks. From them, the elves are descended, while humans are the descendants of those of Eve's children, whom she presented to God. Elves can never be seen as human beings unless they want to be. They, in turn, can both see humans and make themselves visible to them. And so, from that day forth, we have the beginning of the elves as told by the genesis of the elves, of course. The next folk tale, fairy tale, is the field hand. A man from the Sudans in the southwest once went to the north to find summer work as a field hand. As he reached the heathlands, such dense fog descended upon him that he lost his way. It was followed by sleet and cold, so he decided to stop and pitched his tent. Having done that, he broke out his food and began to eat. While he was enjoying his meal, a rust-coloured dog entered the tent, all wet and hungry-looking. The southerner was surprised to see a dog in such a place where he expected no living creature. And so ugly and outlandish was the animal that the man was a bit frightened of it. Nevertheless, he gave the dog all it wanted to eat. The mutt wolfed down the food and then left, disappearing into the fog. The man didn't bother his head about it, but, having had his fill, lay down to rest with his saddle for a pillow. When he had fallen asleep, he dreamed that a woman entered the tent. She was of large stature and very much advanced in years. I should like to thank you for my daughter, my good man, she said. Although I cannot reward you as you deserve, but I'd like you to accept the scrap of a scythe which I'll put here under your saddle. I hope it will be of some help to you, for it will remain equally sharp 
whatever it cuts. Never heat it in a fire, for then it will be of no use. But you can hone it if you feel the need to. The woman disappeared. When the man woke up, he saw the fog was gone, and it was bright daylight. The sun high in the sky. The first thing he did, then, was to get his horses and prepare to continue his journey. He then folded his tent and began to load and harness the animals. But when he picked up his saddle, he saw a scythe, rather worn and rusty, but still usable. Then he remembered the dream, and he packed the implement. With that, he set off again and had a good journey. He soon found his way and was quick to reach the nearest human settlements. As he came to the northern parts, however, no one would take him on, for it was almost a week into the haymaking season. All the farmers had hired whatever help they needed. Then he heard someone say that there was a woman at one farm in the district who had not yet taken on any field hand. She was a wealthy woman and thought to know a good deal. She didn't usually hire any help and never began her haymaking until a week or two behind all others. And yet, she was always finished as soon as they were. The few times she had engaged field hands, she would keep them for a week only and never pay any wages. Thus cautioned about her, the southerner was directed to this woman. And since he could find no work elsewhere, he went to her and offered to mow her fields. Accepting, she said to him, he could stay for a week, but I'll pay you no wages unless you mow more during the week that I can rake Saturday, she warned him. The man thought this was a bargain and started mowing. He used the scythe the elf woman had given him and found that it cut well. He never needed honing and he kept mowing for five days. The woman treated him well, and he was most satisfied. At one time, he happened to a smithy, and, to his surprise, saw a huge number of rakes and a big heap of snaths. He thought to himself that his mistress certainly wasn't lacking in implements. Friday night, he went to sleep as usual. Then during the night, he dreamed that the elf woman who had given him the scythe, came again to his dream, saying, You have cut a great deal of grass, but it won't take your mistress long to rake it altogether, and if she catches up with you tomorrow, she'll dismiss you. So, if you think this is going to happen, then go to the smithy, take as many snaths as you please, and tie scythes to them. Then bring them out to the field with you and see how it goes. So saying, the elf woman disappeared, and the field hand woke. He lost no time getting up once again and began mowing. About mid-morning, the woman came out carrying five rakes. You have cut quite a lot, and more than I thought, she said. Then she placed the rakes here and there in the mown grass and began raking. The field hand noticed that while the woman raked a good deal, the other rakes did even more, although he saw no one holding them. 
As mid-afternoon approached, he saw the grass he had already mown would not suffice. He then went to the smithy, picked up several snaths and tied scythes to them. That done, he returned to the field and scattered the implements about the unmown grass. All immediately started swinging. So, the cut part now grew quite rapidly, and thus it went all day until evening, and there was still more cut grass to rake. When the evening came, the woman went in, taking her rakes with her, asking the field hand to come along and carry the snaffs home. She said he knew more than she had expected, and he deserved a reward. He could stay with her as long as he wanted, she said. The field hand remained there for the rest of the summer. They got along quite well together. They made a lot of hay, even at a leisurely pace. In the fall, she paid him very handsome wages, which he took with him to the south. He returned to her the following summer, and all the subsequent ones that he worked as a field hand. Later, he acquired his own farm on the Sudders, and he was always thought to be a good man. He was an excellent fisherman and an energetic worker, whatever he did. Always alone when mowing his field, he never used any other scythe than the one the elf woman had given him. Yet, he never lagged behind others in the haymaking. He had, however, nothing more to mow than his home field, as is the rule in those parts. One summer it happened, while he was out fishing at sea, a neighbour came by, and the neighbour asked his wife, the fisherman's wife, if she could lend a scythe. He had broken his, he said, and was quite desperate. The woman went looking among her husband's implements and found the good blade, his one and only. She lent it to the farmer, but warned him not to heat it in fire, which she said her husband never did. This he promised and went back home. Here he tied the scythe to his snath and started mowing, but not a single blade of grass would fall. The farmer got angry and Horns aside, but it doesn't help. Then he went to his smithy, intending to beat out the edge, for he figured there wasn't much to lose, though he eated the old scrapper. But as soon as it was on fire, the scythe melted like wax, turning into a mere heap. The farmer then went back and told the woman what had happened. She became frightened for she knew her husband would be extremely upset when he learned about it, and that was indeed the case. Although he did not long brood over it, but how he missed that scythe. The end. So that's the first tale regarding the elves. Of course, it was a magical enchanted scythe that he had. It wouldn't work for anyone else because it was a gift to him. And when you are gifted such a thing, it will only work for the person it is intended to work for. That's why. Thank you for listening and many blessings.
Hi guys, welcome back to my channel. This tale's called The Magistrate's Wife of Bustafell. There once lived at Bustafell in Bopnafjordo, a rich country magistrate of a good family. He was married and maintained a generous household. It was customary at Burstafell during the winter that people take a nap in the early evening before the lamps were lit in the Budstaffer. It was up to the magistrate's wife, of course, how long it would be before she would go and awake people, but only after she had lit the lamps herself. This was the way it had been for generations. One evening it happened that the magistrate's wife didn't wake up at her usual time and the working people got up by themselves and kindled the lights. The magistrate didn't want to have her awakened. He said she was dreaming and should be allowed to enjoy it. It was far into the evening when she finally woke up, heaving a weary sigh and told her dream. She had felt, she said, that a man came to ask her, and he asked her to get up and go with him. She dizzy asked, and he took her some distance from the farm to a large boulder that she recognised to be in the Burstafell land. The man walked three times clockwise around the boulder, at which time it appeared to her that it turned into a small but elaborate house. Then led the magistrate's wife into the house which was beautifully furnished. There she saw a woman in the throes of labour and having great difficulty. Also present in the house was an old woman but no other people. The man now explained his visit to the magistrate's wife. He had come to ask her to save the woman in childbed. Who was his wife? She would die, he said, unless he had human help. The magistrate's wife went over to the would-be mother and said, The Lord Jesus help you. These words worked such, such change that the woman soon delivered to the great joy of everyone. The magistrate's wife noticed, however, that after she mentioned the name of Jesus, the old woman who was also there dragged herself off her bed and carefully swept out the whole house. The visitor had the feeling that the old one considered the dwelling soiled by the utterance of that name. The baby now had to be washed, and the magistrate's wife was asked to do that. The mother then gave her a jar filled with ointment, with which she asked that the baby's eyes be dubbed during the bath. The magistrate's wife, believing the ointment must be something salubrious, did so. It also occurred to her that she ought to smear some in her own eyes, but was afraid to do so in view of the others. She didn't manage, however, to touch her right eye very quickly with a fingertip unseen. The bathing was soon finished, and the magistrate's wife prepared to return home. As she departed, the mother gave her a most exquisite cloth. It was the finest velvet, and all embroidered with gold. The man escorted the magistrate's wife back outside and walked round three times counterclockwise around the house, 
whereby once again turned into a bulba. He then accompanied her home to Bastaville, where he took his leave of her. The magistrate's wife now produced the cloth from her pillow and showed them all the proof of her story. No one had ever, see, ever seen anything of the kind, and people say the cloth is still used as an altar cloth in the parish church to which Bastaville belongs. As for the magistrate's wife, she felt a change in her right eye, which she had daubed with the ointment, for she was now able to see everything that happened in the earth as well as on it. Close to Bistafell, there are said to be large rock formations and high cliffs. The magistrate's wife saw that all was quite different from what, what it appeared to be. It was all farms, houses and large villages. People, filled with people who behaved just like anybody else behaved. They were moving about, raking, cultivating fields and meadows. They had cattle, sheep and horses, all of which grazed with other livestock. And the people, similarly mixed with other people, working whatever they pleased. But no one saw this except the magistrate's wife. And, she noticed, these people used much more practical work methods and were much keener in forecasting weather than ordinary people. They often tethered their hay even when the weather wasn't dry, and sometimes they did not, although there was strong sunshine and breeze. She also noticed that whenever they tethered, dry weather followed, but rain if they didn't. Other kinds of work adhered to a similar pattern. The magistrate's wife tried to learn from their example and the methods and felt it always worked out for her benefit. Some time now passed without event. Then one day the magistrate's wife went to town and when she stepped into the store she saw the woman who had once helped in childbirth. She remembered that she had and she was behind the counter. She had gathered up and held in her arms a load of selected dry goods, as some of the best the merchant had on his shelves. The magistrate's wife realised that no one other than she was aware of the woman's presence, so she walked over to the counter and said, in her friendliest tone of voice, well finally we see each other again. The elf woman turned around, looking quite angry, and without a word, spat in the right eye of the magistrate's wife. With that, she lost sight of the elf woman and never saw her again, nor could she ever see anything else after that, like she had done before. It all went back to the day before she smeared the ointment in her eye. The end. And that's the story of the magistrate's wife. Many blessings. Hello, this tale is called The Tonga Bluff. In olden times, many hundred years ago, a very rich farmer lived at the farm of Tonga. This was in Selingstalo in the west. 
its several children, of whom two sons appear in this story. Their names, however, are no longer known, and we shall call them Anna and Sven. Both were men of promise, though each in his own way. Arno was a brawny-spirited youth, while Sven was quiet and reserved, and no stalwart at all. They were equally different in temperament. Arno was a merry fellow and often played games with other youths in the valley, who would meet by a bluff by the river, opposite the farm of Tunga. It was called the Tunga Bluff. In winter, it was a favourite spot to slide on the hard snow down the bluff, for it was very high, onto the sand flats below, and there would often be quite a ruckus with shouts clamour around. Tunga Bluff in the twilight, as a rule, Anna was the loudest. Sven seldom went along with them. He would most often go to the church when the others went out playing. But he would also go off by himself and then frequently linger by the Tunga Bluff. Rumour was that he had dealings with the elves that lived in the bluff. And one thing was for certain. Every New Year's Eve he would vanish and no one knew what became of him. Sven often admonished his brother not to make so much noise on the bluff. But Arna made fun of him, saying... He wouldn't weep for the elves if the racket bothered them. He carried on as before, despite Sven's repeated warnings that he would be responsible for anything happening. Then it occurred on New Year's Eve that Sven disappeared as usual, but this time he was away longer than he had ever been before. Arna said he would go look for him. He felt sure that he would be with the elves in the bluff. Arna went off, walking in the dark, for it was quite overcast, and he soon reached the bluff. The next thing he knew, he saw the bluff open up on the side, facing the farm, revealing countless rows of shining lights. At the same time, he heard some lovely singing, and understood that the elves were conducting a mass. Moving closer to see what was going on, he came to what looked like open doors of a church and a multitude of people inside. A priest in beautiful vestments stood before the altar with many rows of lights on each side. Arna went in through the door and saw his brother Sven kneeling at the altar rails. The priest had his hands on his head and seemed to be pronouncing something. It was Arna's understanding that Sven is being ordained in some way for there were many other men in vestments all around. He called out saying, Come Sven, your life is at stake. Sven startled, stood up and looked back toward the door. He seemed about to run to his brother, but at that moment, the one at the altar cried out, Lock the doors of the church, punish the human who has disturbed our peace. Turning towards Sven, he added, And you Sven, will have leave with us, for it is your brother to blame, and because you stood up to go to your brother, respecting his impudent call more than holy ordination, 
the next time you see me in these vestments, you shall be stricken dead. Anna watched as the other vested men lifted Sven up high and he disappeared through the stone vault of the church. At that moment, a pealing sound of bells rang out and a great commotion began inside as everyone scrambled to the door. Anna ran out into the darkness as fast as he could, but as he was heading home, he heard the elves galloping with a clatter of hoofbeats behind him. As he ran on, he heard the loud chant of one of the riders. Ride, let us ride, the hills in darkness hide. Craze him and race him, the wretch off the way. So he may never, may never, nay, I say never may, see the light of day. Never see the sun of another day. The whole flock of them then raced between Arna and the farm cutting him off so they'd have nowhere to turn. Having reached the slope south of the farm and east of the bluff, he gave up and sank down exhausted, and the entire flock rode over him. They left him lying there, more dead than alive. As for Sven, he returned home after bedtime. He was very depressed and would tell no one what had happened, except to say they had better look for Arna. The search continued all night long, but he was not found until a farmer from Lauga, who was on his way to morning prayer at Tunga, came upon him by chance on the slopes. Arna was very far gone, but still conscious. He told the farmer the whole story of the evening before as it had been recounted here. He said it would be no use nursing him, for he would not survive. He died there on the slopes which ever since have been called Death Slopes. Sven was never the same after this event. He grew even more solemn and sombre, and never was he known to go near Elfin Bluff again, nor even look in that direction. He abandoned all worldly affairs, took holy vows, and joined the Abbey at Helgefell. So learned was that he had none of the brethren equaled him in erudition, and his chant was so lovely that no one had ever heard the like in beauty. His father lived at Tunga until old age. When he was well along in years, he became very sick. This was close to Holy Week. Suspecting where he was heading, he sent a message to Sven, asking him to come and see him, see him on his deathbed. Sven reacted quickly, but left word at Helgefell that he might not return alive. He reached Tunga on the Saturday before Easter. His father by then was so weak that he could barely speak. He asked his son to sing a mass on Easter Sunday, giving instructions that he be carried to the church. He said he wanted to die there. Sven was reluctant to do this, but he did on the condition that no one opened the church doors during mass. His life depended on it, he said. People thought it was a strange request, but some ventured to guess that he still didn't want to look in the direction of the bluff. The church at that time stood on a hill far up in Hayfield east of the farm, and the bluff was in plain view from the doors of the church. The old farmer was carried to church, and he had directed, whilst Sven put on his vestments, before the old trap began the mass. All those present agreed 
that they had never heard such lovely singing or such masterful chanting, and they all sat there as it were, numbstruck. But when the priest finally turned from the altar and began to chant the words of blessing over the congregation, a sudden violent windstorm from the west flung open the doors of the church. They startled the congregation and people turned around to look toward the door. There in plain view, then, was the bluff, its side open like an entrance and emanating the brilliant light from countless rows of candles. When people turned to the priest again, however, he had sunk down and had already expired. This was a great shock to everybody, especially since the old farmer had, at the same time, fallen dead, dead off the pew on which he had lain, facing the altar. The weather, both before and after the sudden squall, was quite calm, so it was obvious to all that the windstorm from the bluff had not been accidental. Present at the mass was the farmer of Lauga, who had found honour on the slopes before, and he told the whole story. People then realised that the elf's bishop's prediction had come true, for as the bluff stood open and the doors of the church were flung up wide, the two entrances were directly opposite each other, so the eyes of the elf bishop and Sven met as they chanted their blessings. It is a peculiarity of elf churches that their doors face in the opposite direction of those of human churches, that is, toward the east. A parish meeting was later held about this matter, at which it was decided that the church be moved down from the hill into a hollow by a brook closer to the farm. By that arrangement, the farm lay between the bluff and the church, so the priest, as never since, had an unobstructed view from the altar through the church door to Elfin Bluff, nor have any similarly calamitous events happened since. The End Welcome back to fairy tales, of course. This fairy tale is called A Father of Eighteen in Healthland. It happened on a certain farm one summer that all the people were out in the fields except the lady of the house. She was at home doing her chores along with her three-year-old son. Up to that time, the boy had grown and developed well. His speech was already fluent, and he was intelligent and exceptionally promising. Now, since the woman had her household work to do, besides looking after the child, the time came when she had to leave him alone temporarily, while she took the milk troughs to a nearby brook. She needed to wash them. She left the boy in the doorway, but when she returned, shortly afterward, and spoke to the child, he cried and howled in an angry, wretched manner, the like of which he'd never heard before. Previously, the boy had been very even-tempered and of gentle, obedient disposition, 
but all she got out of him now was ugly screams and howls. This went on for some time. The child never uttered a word, and was so fretful and peevish that the woman didn't know how to react to this change in his behaviour. What's more, he stopped growing, began to behave like a dunce. All this grieved the mother, and in her desperation, she went to see a woman nearby. This woman had a reputation for prudence and knowledge, recounting to her the misfortunes that had befallen her. The neighbour asked how long ago precisely the child had first displayed this peculiar behaviour, and how she thought it had come about. The boy's mother told her everything as it had happened. When the wise neighbour had heard all the circumstances, she said, Hasn't it occurred to you, my dear, that this boy might be a changeling? In my opinion, he has exchanged while you left him alone in the doorway. I don't know, said the mother. Can you tell me how to find out for certain? I think I can, said the neighbour. Leave the child unattended some day and make sure that he comes across something that is an absolute novelty to him. He is sure to say something if he sees no one around. But you'll have to eavesdrop to learn what he says. And if you find the boy's speech strange and suspicious, then spank him without mercy until something happens. With this, the two women broke off their talk, and the boy's mother thanked her neighbour for the good advice. Back home, she placed a small, earred pot in the middle of the kitchen floor, then took a few broomsticks and tied them together, end to end, till the upper part reached all the way through the kitchen chimney, while at the lower end, she tied a stirrer, letting it stand in the pot. Having contrived this gimmick, she took the boy into the kitchen and left him there. She herself went outside and hid behind the door, where she could see and hear through the crack between the jam and the door. After a short while, she saw that the child began to toddle around, the stirrer in the pot. He examined it closely, then he said, I'm as old as witness my whiskers. A father of eighteen in Elfland, but never in my life have I seen a pole so long in a tiny, tiny pot. Hearing this, the woman returned to the kitchen with a hefty piece of birch, took the changeling, and whipped him long and hard, while he howled most dreadfully. After she had birched him for a while, she saw a strange woman to the kitchen, a beautiful little boy on her arm, whom she kept kissing and cuddling. The stranger said, How differently we behave. I fondle your child while you beat my husband. So saying, she put down the boy, the woman's son, leaving him there, and took her husband with her. They both disappeared instantly. The boy grew up with his mother and became a very fine man. The end. Thank you for listening. What a wonderful tale that is of a changeling child. A changeling child is said to be a child that has been taken by the fae and swapped. Usually the child is swapped for a sickly child 
In this case, the child was swapped for, it seems, a dwarf husband. So yes, great story. Thank you very much. everyone and welcome back to another fairy tale and this one's called of Marbendil on the southwestern Peninsula south of Lake Shavik there is a small farming village called Voga Creeks but actually the full name of it is Vigavoga Hefa Creeks and it is so called in the Book of Settlements. In early times, there was a farmer in Voga who was an avid fisherman. For even today, the place is one of the best in southern Iceland for small boat fishing. One day, as so often before, the farmer went out angling. There is no mention of his catch of fish that day, but he did get something very heavy on his hook. And as he hauled in the line, he saw the shape of a man emerge and pulled it aboard. The farmer saw the man was alive and asked to him how he happened to be there in the sea. The other told him he was a marbendil, that is, a merman from the sea floor. Asked by the farmer what he had been doing when he was hooked, marbendil replied, I was fixing the cowl of the chimney on my mother's kitchen and he had a please let me down again. The farmer told him there was no chance of that. For the time being, he'll stay with me, he said, and there was no more talk between them. For Ma Bendil avoided any conversation. When the farmer was good and ready, he went ashore, taking Ma Bendil with him. After he had pulled up his boat, his dog came running to greet him and jumped up at him excitedly. Annoyed, the farmer kicked the dog away. That's when Marbendo laughed the first time. As the farmer was heading up through his hayfield to his house, he stumbled over a hummock and cursed it. Then Marbendo laughed the second time. When the farmer reached his house, his wife came out to meet him and greeted him most lovingly. The farmer responded fondly to her caresses. That's when Marbenda laughed the very third time. Turning to look at the merman, the farmer said, You've laughed now three times, and I am curious to know why. There's no chance of that, said Marbenda, unless you promise to take me back to the fishing grounds where you pulled me in. The farmer promised to do so. I laughed the first time, said Marbendil, when you kicked your dog, which was so sincerely glad to see you return. I laughed the second time when you stumbled over the hummock and cursed it, for the hummock is a treasure trove full of gold mint. And I laughed the third time when you responded so fondly to your wife's fawning welcome because she is false and unfaithful to you. Now keep your promise and take me back where you caught me. As of now, replied the farmer, I have no way of checking the validity of the two other things you mentioned, that is, my dog's love for me and faithfulness of my wife. 
but I will test your truthfulness and see if there is money hidden in the hummock. If that proves correct, there is more likelihood that the two other statements are true too, and I'll keep my promise. The farmer now went and dug up the hummock, finding a great deal of money, as Marvendel had predicted. Without another word then, the farmer launched his boat and took the merman back to where he had pulled him in. Before he was lowered to the Siaza, Marbendel said, you have, gonna, you have done a good deed in returning me home to my mother, and you may be sure that I'll reward you if you keep your eyes open and seize the opportunity. And now farewell, my good farmer. The man then let Marbendel loose in the deep, and he's out of the story. Shortly after this happened, the farmer was told that seven Seagri cows had been seen on the foreshore adjoining his homeland, his home field in fact. Losing no time, he grabbed a stick of wood and went down to look at the animals, which were restless and rushed about to and fro on the foreshore. The farmer noticed that they all had a sack on their muzzle, and he surmised that unless he could burst the sacks, he would lose the cows. He then struck one of them on the muzzle with the club he had in his hand and managed to capture it, but the others were lost to him, for they immediately jumped into the sea. The farmer felt certain that it was Marbendel who had sent him the cows as a token of gratitude for his freedom, and... The one captured was indeed the most precious animal that ever grazed in Iceland. A great breed of cattle descended from her, since spread over most of the country, called the sea cow breed. It is distinguished by its grey colour. As for the farmer, he remained a man of great good fortune all his life. It was he who had it to the name of his community, calling it Kavik. Vogar, instead of plain Vogar, after the cow that had emerged on his land. The time is well remembered, when Marbendel laughed of yore, how fawning sweet the mistress, when a man came ashore, kissing him and fondling, a perfidious to the core, the foolish man distrusted, and kicked his dog therefore. The End Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello and welcome back to my channel. This is called Holgerda of Blaifel. There was a man named Olafur said to have been from Aja Jador. He went south to Staffnes every winter season to work as a fisherman. Then it happened once, as Olafur was southward bound across the mountains, that it began to snow. The snowfall soon became so heavy that he totally lost his way and went about for a long time not knowing where he was going, until he recognised a landmark, a mountain named Blefell. Then, through the snowfall, he saw an enormous troll wife not too far away. She accosted him, saying, 
all of her mouth. Are you going south? You should dwell there with your fat mare. Rhyme mouth, take my true advice. Turn around, go home in a trice. Give me a better reason than rowing out from Stathnis this season. Oliver didn't bat an eye at the troll wife's words, but he didn't feel he could take her on in an hostile encounter. So he said, Hail to you and hearty greetings, all girder of Blafell. To which she an- answered, You address me so sweetly of your, and go in peace, my dearest dear. Oliver followed in the troll's wife's tracks and saw a trail of blood in them. He then offered her a seat on the croup of his pack horse, provided that she leave it unharmed. She accepted, saying, Pain's felt by all, even the troll. So she rode for a while until she had directed Oliver on the right course again, and when they parted, she told him to let his horses go as soon as they got to the southern parts, and not to worry about them any more. Oliver's journey went smoothly from then on. When he reached his destination, he let the horses go, and they soon disappeared. But in spring, at the end of fishing season, they returned fat and well-groomed. Oliver went back north, and there were no more stories of him. The end. Short and sweet. Do like it when... uh, a troll's nice, it makes a change. Many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to another fairy tale folk tale. This one's called The Night Troll. It happened at a certain farm person who was left to guard the house on Christmas Eve, while the others were at evening song, was always found either dead or mad the following morning. The farm people were greatly distressed over this, and there were few who wanted to stay home on that particular night. One Christmas, however, a young girl volunteered. That was a relief to the other members of the household. After they left, the girl sat, on a dais in the bad sofa, singing to a baby she held in her arms. As the night wore on, she heard someone at the window saying, What a pretty hand you have, my quick one, my keen one, and diddly do. The girl answered, It has never raked the muck, my prowler, my carry." And Corrie Rowe, the one at the window, said, What a pretty eye you have, my quick one, my keen one, and diddly do. The girl shot back, Never has it evil seen, my prowler, my carry, and Corrie Rowe. The answer came from the window, What a pretty foot you have. My quick one, my keen one, and diddly do. To which then the girl replied, It has never trodden filth, my prowler, 
my carry and carry from the voice at the window came day is dawning in the east my quick one my keen one and diddly do and the girl within retorted stay and turn to stone but be of harm to no one my prowler my carry and the corridor. Then the being disappeared from the window. In the morning when the farm people returned, a huge boulder was found in the alley between the farmhouses. And it has remained there ever since. The girl recounted everything that had happened during the night. It appeared that it had been a night troll that spoke to her through the window. The end. And that another short tale so we're going to go right into the next one which is the last tale regarding the elves and trolls deep indeed the iceland channels legend has it that a certain troll wife wandered to weed over iceland from norway she was aware that there were some channels on that way for she is said to have remarked to another troll wife a neighbor who wanted to to deter her from her death. The deep indeed, deep, deep indeed, the Iceland channels, and yet they are affordable. Nevertheless, she mused, there was one narrow trench near the middle of the ocean so deep that her head might get wet in it. After that, she set off wading and reaching the channel of which she was most wary. Then a ship went sailing by. She wanted to grab it and use it for support across, but she missed it by an inch and stumbled at the same time, falling headlong into the trench where she drowned. Her body later washed ashore at Raud de Sandeur in the west. It was so huge that a man on horseback couldn't even reach with his whip handle into the ham of her bent knee, where she lay dead and stiff on the foreshore, and her body is still there from this day, only hidden now from human eyes. The end. Thank you for listening. I put two there because they're only very short. Many blessings.